invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Colossians and the third chapter. Dave Bly and I were blessed this last week to attend a briefing in Washington, D.C. that was sponsored by the National Association of Evangelicals. As we were there, it was very encouraging to hear some of the freshman representatives who were elected two years ago to go to Washington and make a difference and to see the courage as they have tried to do that with a lot of obstacles being thrown in their way. I want you to know today that though there are great concerns in Washington and though we have a lot of uh, prayer that needs to be offered up on behalf of our leaders, God is doing a work there. About a third of the Senate attends weekly Bible studies. And there are scores and scores who are members of the House of Representatives who are doing the same thing. And they are praying for each other. They are praying for the work that God has called them to do. Many of them know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are seeking to honor Him. And so as we... uh, think about our responsibility to pray, we think about the fall elections, we need to be in prayer, we need to be working for those who will go on and make a difference uh, in Washington, D.C. The United States has become the most wealthy and powerful nation in the history of the world because it was founded upon biblical principles. We were reminded of that this past week, that many of the principles that our founding fathers drew upon were derived from scriptures, not the least of which was the belief in a sovereign God who created us and who rules over the affairs of men. Let me just remind you of what our Declaration of Independence says. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation goes on to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. In other words, our founding fathers did not see the government as the source of the rights of the people of this nation. They saw the creator as the source of those rights. And yet, in our government school system today, children are not allowed to pray. And the Bible is not read. The Ten Commandments cannot even be put in the schoolrooms of our country. They conclude the Declaration of Independence by saying, and for the support of this declaration, we, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. My point is simply this, that the founding fathers of this nation had a deep and abiding faith in God. They were not all Christians. 
but they believed in God. And this nation was founded upon principles that require a belief in God to work. What we observe, I think, in the history of America is that obedience to biblical principles makes a society strong. Not only a society, but a family and an individual. Obedience brings blessing. But disobedience to biblical principles brings decay and destruction. Now today's text in Colossians chapter 3 lays down some foundational principles. Foundational principles for society and for the home and for individuals. Where these foundational principles are followed, there will be strength. And where these principles are neglected or forsaken, there will be grief and decay. Verse 18 of Colossians 3. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. The apostle addresses the household as it was in the days of Rome. Slaves, were common in many families and were considered to be part of the family. <clears throat> and so he addresses the household in Rome. Now, of course, we today do not have slaves. Some of you wives may feel like it, but I hope before the morning's over you won't. We don't have slaves, but the principles that are laid down here apply to us in the home and in the workplace. And what we learn here is that we who name the name of Jesus Christ, who have been raised from the dead and are risen with Christ, we who are called chosen and holy and beloved, we who are commanded to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 17, we have certain responsibilities at home and in the workplace. There are principles that are laid down here which, if followed, will strengthen our homes and, as a result of that, strengthen society. And if we neglect these principles, our homes and our society will suffer as a result of it. The Apostle first addresses wives, and he says to them, Be subject. The Greek word here means place yourself under. 
another in an orderly fashion. This verb does not mean that a wife can be coerced into doing this. The very idea in which he, the way in which he expresses this means that it is to be done voluntarily. It is her choice to defer to her husband. And yet, this subjection is viewed as fitting, as a duty and as an obligation under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Wives, he says, be subject to your husbands. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, we have a parallel text to this that elaborates upon it. I don't have time this morning to read it, but let me just draw a couple of things out from that text that will help undergird this point a bit. It is clear in Ephesians chapter 5 that a mutual submission within the church fellowship is evidence of the Holy Spirit's control in their lives. In verse 18 he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he begins to list the results of that, and one of them is that we within the church, men and women, will have a mutual deference to one another. We will subject ourselves to one another. And in that context, and in that spirit, he goes on to say, and wives, you specifically be subject to your husbands. So you see, this command to wives has a context. And it is the deference that we believers are to show to one another anyway within the fellowship of the church. Secondly, God has appointed order in the home. An order that places the husband as the head or the authority in the home. That is clearly stated in Ephesians chapter 5. And that corresponds to the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. It is a reflection of the order that God has established where Christ is the head of the church. And we submit ourselves to him. This command, and it is a command to wives, does not mean that the husband is the dictator and the master of the home who lords it over his wife. It does not mean that. A husband leads by serving his wife. It does not mean that the husband is to demand or to force subjection from his wife. For he truly cannot do that. No one can force another person into subjection. Rather, the husband's character and his service to his wife ought to make submission from her a willing response. Because subjection, you see, comes out of respect for the leader. This command does not mean that wives are exempted if their husbands are not Christians. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 makes it clear that even when a Christian woman is married to a non-Christian man, there is to be an element of subjection in her home relationship with him. 
Wives, be subject to your husbands. After that succinct statement, the apostle moves on to husbands, and he says, Husbands, love your wives. This was a revolutionary statement in the Roman world, because in that world, wives were often viewed as possessions. Wives were viewed as something that one possessed for his own benefit. They were not respected. There was not understanding, really, between husbands and wives. And so while Paul doesn't undermine the authority of the husband, he mitigates that authority, and he says that authority is to be carried out with love. Love your wives. This word love is the word for God's love. It means that the husband is to continually seek the welfare of his wife. This is an act of the will, not of the affection. This love is an act of the will to choose to seek the welfare of another, whether or not the feelings are there at the moment. It's like faith in that regard. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is a choice that we make to believe God, to trust in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves or whatever else we're trusting in. To love our wives means to choose to act in a way that ministers to her needs. One commentator says, Christian love is not an impulse of the feelings. It does not always run with natural inclinations, nor does it spend itself only upon those for whom some affinity is discovered. Love seeks the welfare of all and works no ill to any. And to husbands, the apostle says, do not be embittered with your wives. Do not be irritated. Do not be harsh or surly. We might put it in the colloquial of our day, don't be cross with your wives, but love your wife. Now in Ephesians 5, again, there's a parallel text, and from it we gain insight the love of one's wife is a self-sacrificing choice. Just as Christ has loved us and given himself up for us, we husbands are to lay aside our rights and to give ourselves up for our wives. But Paul also says it's a self-nurturing choice for us to make. Because he says if we love our wives, in essence we're loving ourselves because we're one flesh. There is great benefit to the husband who practices love for his wife. The benefits and the rewards of that come back to him multifold. And so it is in a sense a self-nurturing choice. And again, it illustrates Christ's care and union with the church. And then within the household, he writes to children, and he says to children, be obedient. Humorist Ogden Nash observed, parents were invented to make children happy by giving them something to ignore. 
not in the Christian home. The word obedience means to listen to and to attend to the words of your parents. Literally it says to hear under them. And so it means to hear what they say and then be ready to carry them out, those words of instruction. It is wise for a child to do this for a number of reasons, including the fact that when a child does this, he is under the umbrella of protection of his parents. There is a safety for the child who obeys his parents. There is safety in obedience. And a child is to obey, it says, in all things. We must note, however, that that does not include abuse. That does not include being told to do what is wrong and having to do that. It does not mean that. But as a general principle, in a healthy way, a child is to obey his parents in all things. And he says this is God's will, and God recognizes this response as something that is pleasing to him. In fact, it well pleases God when a child obeys. And then to parents, or to fathers, do not exasperate, he says, your children. Now, it's not easy to discipline children, is it? That's a tough thing to learn to do. About the time you've learned to do it with some success, they're grown. All parents are a learning curve. Lord Rochester gives some sound advice when he says, Before I got married, I had six theories about bringing up children. Now I have six children and no theories. <clears throat> He tells us here, parents, do not provoke your children to frustration. Do not make them angry and discouraged pointlessly. Now, some parents have so reacted to that that they have uh, failed to discipline their children, and discipline is important. Some author who I do not know wrote these words, I loved you enough, it's entitled. Someday, when my children are old enough to understand the logic that motivates the mother, I will tell them, I loved you enough to ask you about where you were going, with whom, and what time you would get home. I loved you enough to insist that you buy a bike that we could afford to give you with your own money. I loved you enough to make you return a Milky Way with a bite out of it to a drugstore and to confess, I stole this. I loved you enough to stand over you for the two hours while you cleaned your room, a job that would have taken me only 15 minutes. I loved you enough to let you see anger, disappointment, disgust, and tears in my eyes. I loved you enough to admit I was wrong and to ask for your forgiveness. I loved you enough to let you stumble, fall, and hurt. I loved you enough to let you assume the responsibility for your actions when you were 6 and 10 and 16. But most of all, I loved you enough to say no 
when you hated me for it. That was the hardest part of all. It is important to discipline our children. And in our society today, there is such a deification of children that it's an evidence of the convoluted thinking of our culture regarding discipline. It is difficult for me to understand how a six-year-old could fly an airplane across the United States. It's not a problem, etc., etc. We have a deification of children and children's thinking in our culture. John Rosemond, who is a licensed psychologist in uh, North Carolina, who occasionally has a column in our St. Paul paper, wrote several years ago these words. After a recent presentation, he says, I found myself talking with a couple of parents who wanted to know how to set limits without stifling their children's energy. No sooner had they asked the question than up walks a girl of seven or eight. Without missing a beat, she proceeds to address her parents as if I'm not even there. When are we leaving, she asks. I'm bored. Immediately breaking off our conversation, the father says, Now, Haroldine, that surely wasn't her name. Now, Haroldine, what have we told you about interrupting? What are you supposed to say? Excuse me, she says mechanically. That's better, he says. Now, what is it you want to tell us? And right there, to my amazement and amusement, this family demonstrates the degree to which Haroldine's energies are in desperate need of stifling. But I pick on Haroldine's parents when, in truth, they are every parent, and Haroldine is every child. This generation of American children has, as a group, no respect for adult conversation, which simply means they have no respect for adults which simply means their parents, as a group, have failed to communicate the single most important of all distinctions, that adults are not children and children are not adults. He goes on to say, now we're being told that we are good parents only to the degree we become involved with our children. The more we do with them, the better parents we are. Involvement, he says, the emperor's new clothes. The latest spin on the same old child as center of the family universe, professional drumbeat we've been marching to for 40 years. You'd think we would have learned by now. He's got some important things there to say for us, folks. But in the midst of our discipline, we must not frustrate our children. And how is it that children are frustrated? Let me just suggest some ways in which we can exasperate our children as adults. One is by never giving them any physical affection. Or taking them for granted. Or making them feel unwanted. We can exasperate our children by embarrassing them in front of others. By criticizing them unjustly, by putting down their opinions. By bringing up the old mistakes again and again. Children are exasperated when they see their father continually putting down their mother. They're exasperated by inconsistent discipline. 
by our not showing approval of them, by our having too high of expectations for their attitudes and behaviors, by our failure to acknowledge our own mistakes as parents. These are the kinds of things that can exasperate our children resulting in their losing heart or being broken in spirit. So he says, fathers, especially fathers, but parents in general do not exasperate your children. And then to slaves or to employees, as we would apply it in our culture, he says several important things. First, we who are working for others must obey our supervisors, our masters. We must see them, whether they are just or Christian or kind or any of the good things, we must see them nonetheless as God's authority over us. And so we are expected to obey them. Secondly, we are to do our work with a God-fearing attitude. Not just to please men, as important as that may be, we are to do our work fearing God, doing it in the sight of God. Third, we're to do our work with a Christ-honoring diligence. We're to do it heartily. Literally, we're to do it from the soul, with all of our hearts. We're to do our work for the Lord, realizing that ultimately our reward is not the paycheck every two weeks, it's the reward we will receive from Jesus Christ on that day that we see him face to face. This, by the way, gives tremendous dignity to all work. It is the heart and core of what is called the Protestant work ethic that for centuries made America great. And then finally, we're to realize that working in a poor way will bring due consequences. God has not promised us divine protection for lousy work, for sloppy management. There's no favoritism because one is a Christian. We're rewarded for work well done. We suffer consequences when we fail to do our work well. But then he closes with a word to those who are the supervisors or the masters. Those who are in charge are responsible to supply two important attributes to the workplace. Justice and fairness. Justice means to do the right thing. We are to do the right thing for our employees. Not the most economical thing, necessarily, for the company. We're to do the right thing. There's to be justice. Roman slaves had no rights at all, period. And so the apostle says to masters, give them rights. And do what is right before God. Secondly, he says, treat them fairly. Let there be an equality. Treat them as human beings. Do not treat them with partiality, but with equality. 
And the motive for doing so is that those who are masters have themselves a heavenly master, the Lord, who witnesses the way that we treat others, and who will, it implies, compensate us in a similar fashion that we treat others. Now, I began this message this morning by saying that there are certain foundational principles which, if followed, will make a country, a home, and a person successful. There are certain foundational principles given in God's Word which, if followed, will help us make our homes and our lives filled with joy and satisfaction. Not that there won't be problems, there are problems in every home, because a home is a collection of sinners. But when we follow the principles that God gives us, there will be strength in our homes and in our country. I think you can see by the contrast in our country today where we're at. And very sadly, surveys show that there is very, very little difference. I mean within a, a fraction of a percentage point in the attitudes between Christians and non-Christians in America when it comes to the kinds of things we're talking about today. The Apostle says that we're to be distinct and we are to devote ourselves to the principles of God's Word, make them the foundational principles of our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the true family values. We hear a lot about that term, and it's been twisted by some to mean what they want it to mean. But here are the true family values. These things make a family work, and because of that, they make a society work, for a society is a collection of families. If there's going to be hope for America, the America of your children and your grandchildren, there must be another American Revolution. Not one of guns, but one of morals. And yes, it begins at the ballot box. And every one of you had better be at the ballot box next fall and know what you're doing there. And you'd better work for the candidates that are committed to foundational biblical principles and give them money to work with. I'm sorely tempted to digress, and I will not. Except to say that we give our... We expect so much from our representatives and give them so little to work with. We, we heard from one man who went through hell on earth to be elected from Omaha, Nebraska by 1,700 votes, about one percentage. He won over his liberal counterpart. And the FFL-CIO has committed hundreds of thousands of dollars to his defeat this fall. They, are committed, they have committed $35 million to defeat those who were committed to righteousness in the last election and who won. They are determined to take over Congress again. 
So what I'm saying is that you and I need to be deeply involved in the grassroots. We need a, another American Revolution. But listen, it's not going to happen at the ballot box alone. It has to begin in the choices that you make and that I make in our homes. That's where the revolution has to start, and let it start today. And then let it spread. Not just for the sake of America. America is a nation that God has raised up, and he can put it down whenever he wishes. He is the sovereign of the universe. But let us do it. Let us put these foundational principles in place in our lives for the glory of God, for whatever we do, in everything, let us do it for the glory of God. And know that as that happens, it will bring blessing to us as well. Husband, does your wife know that you love her? Wife, are you in submission to your husband? Children, do you obey your parents? Do you respect them? And parents, are you disciplining your children? Being careful not to cross the line to exasperate them? What kind of an employee are you as a Christian? Are you living out your faith in the workplace? And if you're a supervisor, do those under you know that something is different about you because of the way that you treat those that you supervise? Let's hear what God's Word says, folks. Let's put it into place and live out our faith in this world. And in doing that, make a difference. Let's pray. This text makes demands upon all of us. Would you sing with me, if it is a prayer from your heart, these words. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will faith, 
not only desiring to obey these principles, but believing that you are the rewarder of those who do. In Jesus' name, amen.